I was too young to know that what we were trying to do was impossible. We picked San Francisco out of a book, uh, never having been here, and decided uh, that's where we were going to move to. From Palo Alto, California, Silicon Mines, I'm Jason Lopez. Back in the 1800s, head of the patent office who said everything that's been invented has already been invented. They're just dead wrong. On this edition of Silicon Mines, a conversation with Menlo Ventures founder Dubose Montgomery. We didn't use the term venture capital back then. Venture capital, you know, sounded way too risky for folks. That's Dubose Montgomery, who came to Silicon Valley in the 1970s from Boston, though you may have already noticed he doesn't have much of a Bostonian accent. We'll learn about that a little bit later. Montgomery, fresh out of graduate school, started a company called Menlo Financial with some colleagues who had graduated from Harvard and Stanford. Originally, they offered consulting services to smaller tech firms who often couldn't afford the fees of larger players like McKinsey. But they soon figured out they'd actually like to invest in companies. You know, we uh, went out talking with people about raising some money to invest in small emerging growth companies. And nowhere in our original documents was the term venture capital out there. And of course, um, this was in 1974 when it was at the depths of the sort of the worst recession this country had had since the depression out there. NASDAQ was at, I think, about 60, not 3,000. And um, I was too young to know that what we were trying to do was impossible. Um, I was 25 at the time, and it was, uh, you know, anyone today you know, asking me who was 25, could you sort of do this and handling it, I would tell them it's impossible to do. But, you know, that's what the beauty of youth is. You know, you do the impossible. And it took us two years to raise uh, the money for a, a very small uh, venture fund uh, at the time. Uh, we ended up um, having 81 meetings with uh, the insurance company that was our lead investor. And I think in the end, the people we met with just got, you know, so tired of meeting yeah, with us that they were going to say, finally, <laughs> give these guys some money and get going. Our, our, our perseverance uh, won them over. They paid you to leave the meeting, right? <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and once we had them as sort of the lead, then there were a lot of other people that were, you know, looking to see who was going to follow them. And it was a very well-known insurance company, and they decided they would come in too. So we did that, closed uh, – um, our first fund in right around Christmas time, 1976, and um, and then I've been a venture capital, and, you know, uh, ever since. What were some of the first companies that your firm mentored? Well, let's see. One was a company called System Industries. It was started by uh, a guy who was a professor at Stanford, Ed Shaw, who actually later on became a, a congressman for Silicon Valley. But uh, they were one of the first big data companies, in a sense. They were doing large data storage, magnetic storage equipment, about the size of a washing machine that stored, in, you know, 10 megabytes of data. I was going to say, is this a whopping number that <laughs> yeah, you're going to a whopping here? 10 megabytes of data on something the size of a, of a uh, washing machine. But they were doing that for the growing mini-computer field, which was uh, out there. And System Industries, you know, grew grew rapidly. Another company was a company called Boschert Associates. It was, um, it was uh, founded by a guy by the name of Bob Boschert. They did low 
cost switching power supplies for many computers and other electronic types of stuff. And, uh, you know, these power supplies were much more reliable and low cost. And it was a, a deal that, you know, we participated with other venture guys. Back then, you know, you'd get uh, five venture firms all put in half a million dollars to raise two and a half million for a company, and people would jump in together. And then there was uh, Dysan Corporation, and run by a wonderful entrepreneur, Norm Dion. And they were the, the guys who came up with sort of the five and a quarter inch media, disc media for the floppy disk. Uh, you know, Sugar and Associate was doing the five and a quarter inch drives and they needed somebody to make the media itself for it. And so Dyson was a leader in that field. The company grew literally in about, you know, six years to be a Fortune 500 company, 1,200 employees, and it was one of the very first companies that really was green. They were environmentally friendly. They put on their on their desk and whatnot something to encourage people to recycle the desks, not to just throw them away. And so it was. Uh, this was back in the, you know, the seventy seven, seventy eight, you know, sort of time periods. And yet they were way ahead of their times from an ecological standpoint. So that was a, about three of the technology ones we did. Yeah. Take us through the anatomy of a venture capital deal. Who are the players? How does the uh, how does the process work? You know, it starts with a person with an idea. If that person acts on on the idea to try to turn it into a business that sells a product or a service, whatever else, well, then they're an entrepreneur. And then when you can take that entrepreneur and meld it with capital from a venture capitalist or, or what have you out there. If there really is a market, you know, for the product or service they're talking about, then you've got something that magic. And uh, I'll give an example of probably one of the ones that I'm most proudest of is, uh, is a company called Gilead Sciences. We actually incubated and started Gilead Sciences in this very room here at 3000 that uh, we're sitting in today. And today it's a company with a $50 billion market cap, which we owned 100% of at one point. And um, it started with an idea that uh, I had a very bad cold. And I'd gone to my doctor and uh, said, I got this terrible cold, you know, give me something. And he said, look, if you had a bacterial infection, I'd give you an antibiotic. You have a viral infection. There aren't any antivirals out there. Go home, you know, eat chicken soup and uh, feel better in 10 days. And once I did feel better, I came back into the office and I said, you know, why aren't there antivirals? If there's antibiotics out there, why aren't there antivirals? And it turns out a virus is a lot different from a bacteria and whatever else. But we did a lot of work on that. And I had an associate working for me at the time who had a, a medical degree, Michael Reardon. And we uh, incubated and we started Gilead. The first name of the company was Oligogen because we were going to use uh, oligonucleotides to, uh, to try to address this whole problem. But... Um, when we got it started, we uh, hired, you know, some employees out of, you know, some of the other you know, pharmaceutical companies around. Today, Gilead is the leading antiviral pharmaceutical company in the world. They're probably, you know, saving 50,000 lives a year in terms of folks with HIV and, and uh, other types of, um, of viral kind of infections. So, How did the name uh, uh, come about? Well, the name came about, it's actually, again, we had this horrible name, Oligogen, out there. We knew we wanted to change it, and we were looking for names and whatnot. And in the book of Genesis, actually, I think it's probably in the, you know, like 
second page of the Bible or what have you, is where you first hear about uh, getting balm in Gilead. And the balm in Gilead was a branch of a tree that people would get and they would chew on the branch of the tree and get the sap out of it and that would help them feel better and it turns out that the tree is a, the willow tree that grew on the banks of a, a river that grew in Gilead which was a region of Palestine and what's in these willow trees is uh, acetosilic acid which is aspirin. It's the ingredient of aspirin that was the original medicine of this balm in Gilead, and that's how we came up with the name. DuBose Montgomery grew up in a small town of about 5,000 people in South Carolina, a region called the Sand Hills. It's an inland area that traverses ancient sand dunes. The soil is porous, and agriculture favors irrigated crops as well as cotton and tobacco. Montgomery's father worked in a local paper mill, and his mother taught elementary and middle school. And it was through literature that his own love of science emerged. I love reading science fiction books. And I went to the little library in town. I think I read every single Robert Heinlein and Isaac Isomoff book that they had. In all those books, it was a, you know, the hero was typically the rocket scientist. He was someone that, um, you know, I sort of looked up to from that end. And since I was reasonably good at it, people sort of encouraged me to, think about going into, you know, mathematics or science or something. And this was at the time of, um, you know, Sputnik and a few of those things that were driving young people into more science. Yeah, we think of space exploration at that time. And uh, there was that sense that these were challenges that were absolutely monumental. Today, we have the space shuttle. It is kind of cool to see the space shuttle flying around the Bay Area, whatever. We kind of take it for granted. But Back when you were looking at these things from a science fiction point of view, Mm -hmm. we're talking about really going to the other side of a challenge that was quite large. Absolutely. When uh, President Kennedy came up with, uh, you know, we'll put a man on the moon, uh, that was an enormous challenge to the country out there. And I think a lot of the young people um, took that to heart. So you were very, um, you're very excited about this. I certainly was. I mean, I think uh, uh, when it came time to think about where I might go to college, I had read in a lot of the books about this place called MIT that a lot of uh, of the heroes in the books went to. I didn't really know what MIT was. Somebody at one point in time said, oh, that's in Cambridge. And I thought, well, okay, that's in England. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's uh, a long way away. But then I, you know, discovered a little bit uh, later that it was in uh, in the Boston area and uh, was a Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And so even though I didn't think I had a prayer of, of getting in, I decided I would apply anyway, and, um, and I got in, remarkably. How old were you when you were thinking, when you, when you discovered MIT, you saw those three, three yeah. letters? Yeah, oh, that was probably, I'm guessing I was probably, you know, 12 or 13 in terms of reading books and whatever at that point in time, but not really understanding much about it. And uh, then probably when I was 17 and getting ready to go off to college, then that's when I realized that it was, you know, it was a really, you know, it was a school that was uh, here in the United States and was really good at science and engineering. So that seed had been planted. Yes. And then when it sprouted, you found yourself walking through the halls of MIT. What was it like your first day when you uh, walked in? It was a really amazing thing because I had, again, I'd grown up in a very small rural town in the south and had never been north of the Mason-Dixon line, never been to Boston, never seen the school ahead of time. And I'd grown up in a very small 
you know, pond. I'd done very well in math and science in a, a very small pond, less than 100 people in my graduating class. And suddenly I'm at MIT with uh, people that had certainly a lot more uh, background in, uh, in their education and whatnot. But MIT was a wonderful school. It, was, uh, it took everybody and started them at the same level. You know, one thing led to another, and it turned out that I ended up doing very well uh, there at the school, both uh, academically as well as uh, in a lot of extracurricular activities, too. Did you have uh, any idea what you would do when you graduated? I thought uh, at the start that I was going to be a mathematician. And then as I took more classes in math and in science and what have you, I decided that mathematicians were not really as, as um, interesting in terms of the kinds of jobs and whatnot they had that engineers would be. You know, I gravitated towards uh, uh, electrical engineering and computer science because computer science at this time was really, you know, at the nascent of a lot of its, uh, its development and uh, ended up getting, you know, a bachelor's and a master's in electrical engineering and computer science and then a little bit later also, you know, getting a, um, um, a degree in management science from the Sloan School. Montgomery was on a Ph.D. track at MIT but he decided to shift his emphasis, and against the advice of his mentors, he went to Harvard, where he got an MBA. But the twist in the story comes from an unexpected source, the 1973 oil crisis. In northern parts of the U.S., but especially the Northeast, people rely on oil to heat their homes. Montgomery was just out of graduate school, and he and his wife were renting an apartment in Boston. With the price of oil skyrocketing and an especially cold winter setting in as the new year arrived, many Bostonians were bracing for a season of keeping their thermostats down. The landlord turned the heat on for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, and that was it in terms of the, uh, of the oil. And one morning I went out to find my little Toyota that was parked on the street had been plowed in by the uh, snow plows the night before, and then temperature had risen a little bit over freezing and then dropped below, and it was now encased in a solid block of ice. And so with my, you know, handheld scraper and what have you, it probably took me about two hours to uh, to get the car you know, out. And I said, at the end of that, I am never spending another winter in Boston. And so I literally that weekend, my wife and I went down to the Boston Public Library. We checked out travel books on um, travel in the United States, like you could get the photo books, travel in Europe. And we took them back and we read them looking for a place that would have Good weather, would never snow, but would have some of the cultural aspects of Boston and some of the business and scientific and, and whatnot. And we picked San Francisco and the Silicon Valley, which was, I'm not even sure it was named Silicon Valley at that point in time, out of a book. Never having been here and decided uh, that's where we were going to move to. And so we got in our little Toyota and drove out here. And uh, the rest is, as they say, history. <laughs> Give us a, a sketch of uh, Silicon Valley when, mm -hmm. when you arrived. What was it like? There were still quite a lot of orchards that you would see. Interstate 280 had literally sort of just been built about that time period. We could drive from here, Menlo Park, down to you know, Cupertino, San Jose, and maybe only see two cars on all of Interstate 280, whereas today, obviously, it's, you have a whole lot you know, more traffic jams. It was still a fast pace. You had Stanford Linear Accelerator, which was across the road here at Sand Hill Road. 
You know, you had the Allstate building, uh, uh, which is down here. Kaiser was in the new Quadras area. And 3000 Sand Hill Road, where we are right now, was just being built. In fact, uh, Menlo Ventures was the first tenant here in this building four. And um, a time period where fewer cars, more orchards, fewer buildings, fewer people, but still there was a lot of people that were talking about growth. I mean, Intel had been started in, I think, 1968 and gone public two years later in 1970. And so the semiconductor industry and whatnot was alive and well and growing and exciting. Hewlett-Packard was, you know, growing and building a lot of electronics out there. You had Raychem that was doing some really interesting things. SRI was a, a place that was attracting a lot of very intelligent people in it. So I think that there was certainly a feeling in the air that with Stanford and with Berkeley and with the kind of professors and other folks here, this is a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful place to be starting businesses and creating things, just as today. Venture capital has become almost synonymous with technology. What was innovation like Mm -hmm. here? What was it like then? Yeah, well, you know, it was the environment for startups, I think, in the in the 1970s, it was very dynamic. It was very fast-paced, just like it is today, except that there was no internet, you know, there were there were no email, there were no cell phones. Uh, we, we communicated with, uh, with dial phones and typewriters and the U.S. mail <laughs> for doing things. But it's still within the environment that we operated, it was dynamic, it was fast-paced. I remember when Wolf Corrigan, who was the founder of LSI Logic, he came in to our, our office and uh, made a presentation. By the end of his presentation, we committed to invest in the startup round. It took us two minutes to decide that LSI Logic was going to be successful. And even today, I mean, people can make decisions just that fast. So you have to be fast-paced. You have to be dynamic. We had an open-door policy just like we do today in terms of, you know, anybody can contact us and send us a plan and, and we'll, we'll um, you know, give it some thought in terms of is this something that uh, we think is interesting or not. But you had to do it with, you know, a different set of tools uh, back then than you do today. And since a lot of, of innovation is people and ideas, one of the things that you have today is you have the ability uh, through all the wonderful, you know, uh, Facebooks and other networks and whatnot that are out there to put people uh, and ideas together. And so someone here in Silicon Valley, you know, who has an idea, you know, that they're talking with someone that's in Germany or in China, that can be done much more easily than it could back in the, in the 1970s. Ideas then grew out from folks that were here at Stanford, and maybe you have someone from Stanford and somebody from Berkeley with the idea that would get together, but you probably wouldn't have somebody from Stanford, you know, talking with, um, you know, somebody from uh, Beijing University and collaborating on a new idea. So the VC's role really hasn't changed that much since you started. I don't think so. I mean, I think a venture capitalist really is a coach. And hopefully a good coach who lets entrepreneurs, you know, run the plays without calling every shot, you know, from the sidelines out there. It is a team effort. It's always been a team effort. And I believe that it works as well today as it did back in the 1970s. Uh, we've got this, um, this saying at, at, uh, at Menlo, it's venture right, R-I-G-H-T. And it means that you know, a great professional that can really add value to a startup it means uh, having a deep domain expertise on the markets that we're investing in so that uh, we can help our portfolios make the right 
you know, sort of strategic uh, decisions. And uh, I think venture right, you know, means that you got to be, you know, hardworking, but a humble, you know, board member one of the startup companies who, um, and someone who's really dependable and is, is, is there when the CEO needs them. And those kinds of traits, I think, are needed in venture capitalists and are needed just as much as they were in the 70s as the 80s and 90s and, and, uh, and today. As you look at the history of Silicon Valley, what themes do you see in the march of uh, development and change? Innovation is something that comes really from technological change. And that this technological change is the engine that drives new ideas and that leads to new businesses. Um, and the innovation comes from people and ideas. And as these ideas come about and change comes about, it accelerates. And so things are certainly very fast-paced today, and they're accelerating faster. And so I do think that the rate of change of innovation seems to be something that is, uh, uh, is increasing, as it has sort of every decade that I've been at it in terms of doing that. But, you know, we think, I mean, one of the themes that we're quite interested in and we're in, uh, sort of investing in is something called collaborative commerce, whereby people can collaboratively, realistically, um, share uh, things like share uh, autos. Uh, one of our portfolio companies is Get Around, where people can share their auto with other people uh, instead of going through a rental car, or can share their rooms uh, to travelers. Another company is Couch Surfing, that uh, as you travel, you can stay on somebody else's couch out there for a lot less. And this collaborative commerce, we think, combines you know a lot of the technological advances that you're seeing in mobile and in social and in cloud to create you know a really remarkable experience for consumers and that's just one example of this innovation that you're seeing i do think that you'll see innovation obviously coming in robotics and personal genetics i mean there's so many fields out there that are uh, are growing and we are nowhere you know near the end of uh, moore's law or uh, technological innovation it's just you know, it continuing to span. One thing that just pops into mind about the idea of collaborative commerce, yeah. it almost seems like as the technology becomes less the important piece, the more that people can then pursue what that device does, what the results of using it are. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I do think the objective of the people that are making the devices, that are making the iPads or the iPhones yeah. or whatever else, are, is to make it so simple and uh, so foolproof, the device doesn't get in the way of what you're trying to do. I mean, We're not uh, selling it to geeks. Then. Exactly, exactly. I mean, but that's nothing new. The telephone, you know, was, you know, so reliable back in the 1950s and 60s and whatever else because AT&T uh, made it that way. It was simple. You picked up the phone, you dialed a number, and then you got to use it for the things that you wanted to use it for, as, uh, as you see today. So... Um, you, people have to under, understand that there is a huge amount of technology, of software, of hardware, whatever else that goes into the new iPhone 5 or what have you, or, um, or the Siri. Siri was a, a deal that we invested in at Startup Round with the idea that you could actually you know, make software to a point where it could recognize people's voice and be their personal assistant. And uh, we sold the company to, to Apple, and um, uh, it has been a phenomenal success for Apple out there. But there's a whole lot of technology and software behind Siri that makes it 
as easy to use as it is. And that was something, obviously, that we were you know, very heavily involved in in the startup of the company. So you don't see the electronic side of all of this technology, chips, even this, let's even throw the software in there. You think that the green field for that is still wide open? I do. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, next will be, you know, quantum computing uh, or something. Um, there are, there are uh, huge additional steps that people can make. And um, uh, every time someone has come out and said, gee, uh, back to the guy back in the 1800s, who, who the patent head of the patent office, who said everything that's been invented, you know, uh, will be in, has already been invented. Uh, I think they're they're just dead wrong. You know, next step comes on top of the steps that are there. The advantage of today's interconnected world is that people can learn the steps that have already been developed and what have you, and can build off of them much easier than they could before. And uh, um, there'll be opportunities in hardware and software. I still think of the next you know decades coming along. The final question here, what are one or two things you wish that every budding entrepreneur practiced or did before coming to you with an idea? Well, I guess, uh, you know, first off, I, I think when they're thinking about ideas or what have you, they need to keep an, an open mind about what these ideas are that they have. And, um, you know, it, sometimes you have an idea, you think it's the right one, you want to sort of move on that. But, it, you know, you really do need to take a different fork in the road off the ideas. You need to pivot from what you're doing because the path you own, you'll get stuck on in some fashion. And so I think... On one hand, you have to be driven and be convinced that what you want to do is something that's the right thing to do, but open to the fact that you may have to pivot, may have to change in some form or fashion out there. Twitter started out with something completely different than what Twitter is today from that end. A second thing is don't let yourself get too high on the good days or too low on the bad days because there are a lot of bumps in the road as you go along. I've certainly seen them you know, myself over you know the 36 years, and you just have to expect that. Expect that it's going to happen, and just you know go through it. So don't get don't get too high up on one, and don't get uh, too low on the others. And finally, I I like to tell um, my entrepreneurs and what have you that life is not a dress rehearsal. That uh, you need to treat everyone with fairness and dignity, you know, uh, but enjoy the journey because you don't get to do it over. Um, and so it's all about making sure that both your company and your family and uh, the people that you interact with out there is something that is important to, to be a human being. DuBose Montgomery is still leading Menlo Ventures, the firm he founded in the 1970s on Silicon Valley's famed Sand Hill Road. All have deals that we wish we had done. We call them the woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of situation. So, a little, uh, a little poem that, that that goes like this: At times, a teardrop drowns my eye for deals we saw but did not buy. If only we'd invested then, the world might think we always win, which of course we don't. But uh, if you win a few, you've got a successful venture capital business. 
Silicon Minds is a production of Connected Social Media in Palo Alto, California. I'm Jason Lopez. Other episodes of Silicon Minds can be found on iTunes and at connectedsocialmedia.com. <laughs>